It's been a couple weeks since we've been in this passage with our uh, couple guest guest speakers that have been that have been preaching for us. So I want to I want to read a little bit just to get us back into the back into the flow of where we are in 1 Corinthians. Uh, so actually, I'm going to start in verse number 10 and read all the way down to the end of the chapter. Okay, 1 Corinthians 1 and read 10 to the end of the chapter. This is God's word to us. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And now the words that we'll be studying together this morning. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Really excited for us to be able to get into these just phenomenal verses of fixation on Jesus Christ and the great news about him. But before we dive in, I am also aware that we need help. So I need help and you need help. And so let's ask him for that again. Father, as we are now on the verge of considering your holy word, we again pause to humble ourselves before you. It is your word that we want to live in, in dominance over us. We, we want it to inform our thinking and our action. We want it to change how we believe and how we behave. So Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit's power. The same Holy Spirit who had power to raise Christ from the dead and who inspired this very word. That Holy Spirit is inside us as a church this morning. And so we need him to illumine our minds, to guide our understanding, to convict our hearts, and to to drive us to action. And so I pray for his help um, for me and for all of us. When we come to the close of this message, I pray that you would have impressed on our hearts how great is your wisdom And how marvelous is our Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. There's a song that we like to sing together called The Glory of the Cross. And the first verse says this. What wisdom once devised the plan where all our sin and pride was placed upon the perfect lamb who suffered, bled, and died. And then it answers that question for us. The wisdom of a sovereign God whose greatness will be shown when those who crucified your son rejoice around your throne. Where we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and especially where we will be this morning from verses 18 on, is a consideration of the wisdom and the power of God. 
And Paul is directing the Corinthians' attention, and he's directing our attention to the wisdom and the power of God because he's still continuing his appeal from verse number 10. So let me just remind you from where Jeremy preached several weeks ago. He appealed to them in verse number 10, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. This is the overarching command, um, not just of that paragraph, but I'm convinced it's actually the overarching command of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4. And everything else that we're studying is actually kind of a subpoint of this main idea, let there be unity and not division. So the overarching idea we could stamp over chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 the, the big idea of these whole chapters is that divisions end and unity exists when we believe God's wisdom over worldly wisdom. Divisions end and unity exists when we believe God's wisdom over worldly wisdom. You see, Paul is going to build, in, in the exact verses we're going to look at, he's going to build on the command to, to pursue unity and his appeal that we agree and there not be divisions. But that's something he's going to continue throughout these chapters. And let me just show you a couple ways that you can see that. There are two main ways you can see that this is all just connected to this main idea. One is the little word for that just shows up all through chapter one, and it's going to be in chapter two, and we're going to see it later, right? There's a little word for that keeps saying he's building on what he's already said. So in, in verse number 10, he had made his appeal. Verse number 11, he says, for it's been reported. And then he, and then he provides some, some information. Verse number 17, he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize. We get to our verse, verse number 18, for the word of the cross is folly. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Verse number 26, for consider your calling. You see that little word for keeps popping up? That's because everything he's saying is, is being connected in this nice logical chain, all right? It's a big chain though, but it goes all the way back to verse number 10. And so I think if we're actually gonna understand 1 Corinthians 1, and 2 and 3 and 4, um, that verse number 10 is pivotal in our understanding because Paul is appealing to us to avoid divisions and to pursue unity. That's his overarching idea. And what he does in, in the rest of chapter 1 and then 2, 3, and 4 is, is he, give, he gives reasons and he gives ways that we can pursue unity. And the way we can pursue, pursue unity is to believe God's wisdom over worldly wisdom. You see, God's wisdom is going to be displayed in these, in these passages. We're going to look at two ways God's wisdom is displayed today. One, the message of the cross, and then secondly, the calling of the Corinthians. But then he goes on in chapter number two to talk about his own preaching, Paul's own preaching. How Paul preached is directly connected to the wisdom of God, and that's supposed to end divisions and bring unity. You notice in chapter number three, if we can look ahead just a little bit, because I do want you to see that this, I mean, Paul's still talking about the same thing. Look in, look in chapter number three. He says, I, brothers, in verse number one, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still in the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Paulus, are you not being merely human? All right. You see, there, there those names are again. He hasn't left off this theme of divisions. So you get all the way to chapter three, and I can't even tell you how many months it's going to take us to get to chapter 3, but we're still going to be talking about the same thing, the ending of division and the bringing of unity. He carries that all the way through uh, chapter number 3. He talks about who's Apollos, what is Paul. Um, you get down to the end of chapter 3, and he says in verse number 21, Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. So you should just regard us as stewards in chapter 4. You see how all that's connected to end these divisions, especially over people, all right? And so I know um, because, of, because of how we study the scripture and it's right for us to go, to go verse by verse, one of, one, of the, one of the problems with that is sometimes we lose the big picture, right? I mean, if you're the Corinthian church, you're hearing this letter read and it's being read to you in one pop, all right? So when you get to chapter 2 and chapter 3, you're still thinking about unity, you're still thinking about ending division because you just heard that read like four minutes ago. For us, it's been several weeks. And so let me just, let me just encourage us that the big idea is divisions end. Unity exists when we believe God's wisdom over worldly wisdom. But what we're going to do is we're going to break that down instead of trying to go through four chapters in, in one morning, which is one big idea. We're going to break it down. And so this morning's message from verses 18 through 31 has its own, has its own two main points. And here's what they are. 
First of all, God's wisdom is better than man's wisdom, and it leads to boasting in Christ alone. So that's today's big idea. God's wisdom is better than man's, and it leads to boasting in Christ alone. So we could say there's the statement of the fact, just basically these these two points, these two paragraphs. There's the statement of the fact that God's wisdom is better than man's, and then there's going to be the illustration of the fact beginning in verse 26. So let's dive into the statement of this fact. The word of the cross looks foolish to the lost, but it looks wise to the saved. All right? The word of the cross looks foolish to the lost, but it looks wise to the saved. Verse number 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is directly connected to verse number 17. In 17, Paul had written that he had preached not with words of eloquent wisdom. Right? That, that plural words, it's actually a singular, not with a word of eloquent wisdom. So he's contrasting the word of eloquent wisdom with the word of the cross. And so he says that word, the word of the cross, it looks crazy. It looks foolish. It looks absurd. It looks ridiculous to the ones who are perishing. The word of wisdom, yeah, man, that makes sense. Let's, let's rally around that. The Corinthians are going, yeah, let's, let's find wisdom. And, and whoever, man, I mean, I like the way Paul says stuff. And I like the way Peter says, let's, let's rally around uh, our uh, system of, of wisdom. Let's, man, I like the Greek philosophers and they sound so wise. Um, there's words of eloquent wisdom and people that just have a golden tongue. And that's who I want to listen to. And, and Paul says, there's something different than words of eloquent wisdom. There's something that is the word of the cross. And that word looks crazy to people who are perishing. It looks nuts. These two things, the word of wisdom and the word of the cross, they're mutually exclusive. So words that are based on human wisdom and ingenuity and cleverness, they might look great, but they're different than the word of the cross because it's the content that Paul prizes and not the package that it comes in. All right, It's the content. We can stop right there and find our very first application, right? Do, do we prize eloquence over content? Because Paul says, it's not the word of wisdom that appeals to me. It's the word of the cross. You can, you can pick any radio or TV or internet teacher or preacher that you want, and, and you can ask yourself, what is it that causes me to prefer one kind of teacher or preacher to another? What is it? Uh, you could do this, obviously, in our local church, but I'm thinking even the broader, broader scheme. If you're listening to sermons from even outside of our church, what makes you like one particular guy more than you like another guy? I think what Paul would tell us is prize them for their content. Prize them for their content. Don't just, find, don't, don't just judge on, an, on a, well, that sounded wise, or, um, man, he, he says things so perfectly. Um, judge them by their content not just by how they sound. Paul says it's the word of the cross, and that word is folly to the ones who are perishing. I'd rather have a wise word, not this word of of a cross, of crucifixion. I think for us, even this morning, and when we hear cross, we have this big cultural disconnect about how shameful the word of the cross was. All right? I'm looking around right now. I, I don't see any, but it wouldn't be unusual for us to have even crosses as jewelry, right? So maybe some of you, maybe you're wearing a necklace, maybe you're wearing an earring, and it's, it's got a cross on it, all right? We have crosses on, on the tops of church buildings. There's, there's crosses in our logo, right? Our church logo has, has a cross built into it. Um, in, in our culture, there's, there's not a whole lot shameful about a cross. In fact, it's something that we celebrate. I think what we need to do is get back to where the Corinthians were and we need to remember that the cross was, was the instrument of the most horrible, horrendous execution that exists. The, the cross was, was, for, was for the worst of the worst. It was for the criminals. There were those in polite society in the Roman world who wouldn't even say the word cross or crucifixion. It, it was something you didn't want to think about. You certainly didn't want to see it. You wanted it in the back of your mind. All right, It was a shameful thing. Um, I, I don't know. I, I can't. It's so hard for us to have a good modern-day parallel. I, I guess when I think about execution, I mean, I think about the electric chair, I guess. I mean, it would be crazy. I would be deeply concerned if any of you ladies walked in 
this morning and you had an electric chair necklace, all right? I, I think we've got a problem and we need to sit down and talk. Um, that, that's just not something that, you know, we're not putting it in our ears and it's not in our logo, like electric chair. All right, that's at least comparable to, I mean, these Corinthians, they, they saw cross and it meant shame. It meant, it meant criminal. It meant vile. It, it didn't mean what it means to us, which is just symbol of, I don't know, Christianity or something. It was a shameful thing. And so the word of that cross was bound to be folly because the cross was a hideous thing. Paul says there's only two groups of people in the world. There are those who are in the process of perishing and there are those who are in the process of being saved. And the difference is what the word of the cross means to them because it's folly to the ones who are perishing. It's crazy. But... But this is, this is good news for us, beloved. To, to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. This is God's grace to us that, that when we see the cross, we don't see craziness. Um, we don't see shame. We see actually the power of God on display. And so Paul says the, the word of the cross, it, 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 isn't just, it isn't just good advice. It's not just a good recommendation. It's actually God's power. He says the, the word of the cross, it isn't even just words about the power of God. The cross doesn't just tell us about God's power. It actually is God's power. The word of the cross, it is power to us who are being saved. All right? Paul is looking at salvation as that ongoing process that will culminate in our final salvation. That salvation that none of us have fully right now, right? None of us have fully arrived. We're not in our glorified state, but we're being saved. That's why it's this ongoing process. We're being saved. Just like everyone else in the world who would reject the word of the cross, they're in the process of perishing. Only two kinds of people. And it's the word of the cross that makes all the difference. Paul explains in verse number 19 that that this is exactly the way God planned it. Because in verse number 19, he says, for it is written. He's going to tell us why it's folly to the ones who are perishing, but why it's the power of God to us are being saved. Here's why. That's true. Because it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. This comes from Isaiah 29. And in Paul's understanding, when he says it's written, he's talking about the Old Testament, and he says, God has already spoken this, and now it's just that it's happening. All right? Paul has a high view of the inspiration of the Old Testament, and he says, God already said this is exactly what's going to happen, and now it is. Because the cross is God's plan to end all human sense of self-sufficiency. So any human sense of wisdom or power, it meets the cross and the cross shows all of it up. Because God said in the Old Testament, my plan is I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'm going to decimate it. But, and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. So he's going to destroy the wisdom and he's going to thwart the discernment. And he does that through the cross. He does it through a powerful cross. Notice that he said the word of the cross is folly to the ones perishing, but to the ones being saved, it's powerful. Notice he didn't say it's folly to one group and wisdom to another group. All right? He's saying it's foolish to one group and it's effective, it's powerful for another. And so he says in verse number 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? He says, let's, let's look for the cultural experts because that's who he's talking about in verse 20. Let's, let's go to the experts. Let's go to the professionals. Where's the one who's wise? That could be a word that's, that's used to refer to um, like one of the Greek philosophers. So where's the guy who's, where's the guy who's really wise? Um, where's the scribe? That's a word that would be pointed more in the Jewish direction. All right, Where, where's the Jewish scribe, the one, who, the one who writes the law and, and, and memorizes all of it or large portions of it? Where's that person? Where's the debater of this age? Where, where's the guy that's great at debate? Where are they? Because just like Proverbs tells us, there's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? This too is, is God's grace because if you're here this morning and, and you're no longer pursuing the way that ends in death, then that's because God has been gracious to you. Instead, you're following God's way that leads to life eternal, but there are lots of other people who are still pursuing a way that ends in death. And they're the people that think they're wise. They're the people that think they're religious. They're the people that think they're a great debater. 
and they're still exalting their wisdom over the word of the cross. Paul says, God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. All right? I don't know if your brains just went numb with all that like wisdom, not wisdom, folly thing, but Paul's making a, a, really, a really important point. In God's own wisdom, all right, in, in the mind and in the wisdom of God, the plan of salvation and, and knowing him didn't happen through human wisdom. Right? So God has wisdom, and God knows that the best way to salvation, the best way to knowing him, is not through human wisdom. That's, that's not the way to get to know God, is through wisdom. You see, what, what Roman philosophy would possibly end at the cross? What, what great Greek philosophy of life would end with the Savior crucified? What great thinker could possibly dream up crucifixion as a means of salvation? All right, if we try to put this in modern terms, um, can, can, can communism ever lead to the cross? Can socialism, can democracy, can, can human schemes, is that what leads us to salvation? All right, can, can a humanistic liberal arts degree, does that, does that end at redemption? What worldly wise way of thinking could possibly come up with the same way of salvation that, that God did? All right, that's the philosophy side. What about the religion side? I mean, what... What man-made religion could possibly dream up grace and the sacrificial death of its own God? This is not the way man-made religions work. That's not what we would dream up with our man-made religions. You see, God has a wisdom, and he knows that, that the wisest way for us to find salvation is not in letting us come up with our own way or creating our own way. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom through ingenuity, through cleverness. But instead, verse 21 says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleased God. That is a strong, strong statement from Paul about God's free, sovereign choice to make life this way. It has never been God's plan for people to be saved through their ingenuity or through their cleverness or through their intellect or even through their effort. It pleased God to make life this way. That word please has the, has the idea of not just taking delight, but, but choosing to take delight this way. So it pleased God. This is, this is the way that God wanted to do it. And so as the sovereign, this is how he did it. It pleased God, and what did he do? What, what was God's free sovereign choice in, in this wisdom? What was it? Well, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. All right? That's what pleased God. It pleased God to use what the world says is folly in the word of the cross, and it's that foolishness that actually saves people who believe. That's God's wisdom on display. God's wisdom says, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring salvation to people, and I'm going to do it in a way that doesn't look like human wisdom at all. In fact, human wisdom looks at it and goes, that's nuts. That, that whole crucifixion thing, that's crazy. That's crazy talk. That's foolishness. And actually, it's God's wisdom on display. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach, the preaching of Christ crucified, to save those who believe. We're back again to this theme of grace and good news for you, right? Because if you're here this morning and you say, I'm one of those who, who have been saved, that's because you have believed in a foolish word. You've believed in a cross message. And this is God's kindness to you. Because if not, you would still be living your life, dreaming and scheming of your way to get to heaven. You'd be following this philosophy or that philosophy, this religion, that religion. You'd be searching desperately for how can I, how can I make myself right with God? Is there even a God? Uh, I need to be a little bit better. I've been really bad. You'd be wrestling that all your life, but instead, you are those who are saved because you have believed the word of the cross. And this is God's goodness to us as believing people. Salvation is for those who believe in the content of the preaching, which is Christ crucified. It's not just that the philosophers and the scribes failed to find their way to God through their wisdom. It's that God sovereignly planned that no one would be able to do that. The gods of, the gods of someone who is wise, who creates an intellectual God, 
they don't have a lot of time for those who are not as intellectual or they view dumb. The gods of those who are rich, they don't have a lot of time for those they deem poor. And yet, God is the one who didn't look for riches and poverty. He didn't look for riches and wisdom. He looked for those who would believe a foolish message. And this is, this is good news. He goes on to explain two basic idolatries that we still face today, but definitely that the Corinthians were facing. There's a reason that the, the word of the cross looks like folly, all right? There's a reason. The reason is verse number 22. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And that looks like neither a good sign nor wisdom. He says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and it's folly to Gentiles. Here's the two basic idolatries that I think we still face today. Number one, I must have a sign to guarantee my faith. That's an idolatry. I, I, I want to I see a sign. Give, give, me, give me more proof. Do, do something else. I must have a sign to guarantee my faith. Or secondly, I must decide that faith meets my criteria for wisdom. And I think this is still our world today. Our world today still says, I need to see a sign, all right? So if you, if you can't do signs and wonders, I don't really want your gospel. Um, if you can't speak in tongues, I don't want your gospel. If you can't heal me from my cancer, I'm not really sure that you have a true gospel, all right? That's those who look for signs that they have to have to validate their faith. And at the same time, there are those who say, I, I'm, faith must match what I think is wise, so I'm going to look at the Bible, and I'm going to stand in judgment over it, all right? And so, um, man, this idea of, of, a, of, an, of a redeemer, of atonement, someone who dies in my place, that sounds really, that sounds kind of like punishment. And, uh, and the modern mind doesn't like punishment. And uh, I mean, I think that's kind of like God abusing his own child. And so we're going to throw out that understanding of atonement. We're going to come up with our own way. That's, that's faith that meets my criteria, all right? Faith that meets my criteria says, yeah, I know that Genesis is back there, but it certainly can't mean that God actually literally created the world. Uh, and so there has to be something else going on there, not creation. That's, that's our wisdom saying, I decide what's true and what I'll believe in. Same two idolatries the Corinthians were facing because they had Jewish people in their congregation and they had, they had Greeks. And so the Jews want signs. Jews demand signs. Um, I thought it was, it was really interesting. Talking with Scott Booker, he gave a gave kind of the devotional at the beginning of our last pastor's meeting. And uh, one of the things I thought at the end of that was, man, I wish I could be in adult Bible fellowship all the time. That was one of the things I thought. Um, so if you're not in there, you guys are really missing out. But he's been in John. And uh, so he was in John 6. And Jesus had just done the miracle where he fed the 5,000. I think specifically the 5,000 men, so, so maybe even more, right? So he'd just done this amazing miracle. And, uh, and so he leaves and the crowds come to him, and they want him to feed them some more because that's what they want. And, and you know what, the, what their question is for them when he tells them that their work is to believe in him? What's their question? Their question is, well, what kind of sign are you going to show us so we believe in you? You're going like, are you kidding me? Like, what sign? I mean, you know, like besides all that food that you got from five loaves and two fish? Um, you know, when John's disciples came to Jesus and asked if he was the Messiah, Jesus said, you go back and tell him uh, that the lame are walking and the blind are seeing and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and even the dead are raised to life and the poor have good news preached to them. What do you mean you want a sign? You want a different sign. You want more. And the Jews just said, we've got to have more. You've got to do something bigger. It's got to be grander. Uh, so any sign you give me, it's still not enough. All right? That's that's the nature of the heart that demands I've got to have a sign. It's not that our faith is based on, on nothing and it's a blind leap in the dark, but the heart that says you have to keep showing me a sign and a bigger one and a bigger one is a heart of unbelief, just like the Jews had. And so the cross, it didn't look like a sign to them. The cross looked like foolishness. It looked like the end of Christ. So they said, that's a stumbling block. In the, in the second, second century, um, there was a, one of the first Christian apologists, his name was Justin Martyr, um, and he got into a discussion with a rabbi named Trifo, and uh, he wrote this, wrote this thing, I'd call it a book, but uh, Dialogue with Trifo is what it's called, a little pamphlet. And, and this is what Trifo said, because Justin Martyr was trying to convince him that Jesus of Nazareth really was the Christ. In fact, places like Daniel 7 convince him that this is true. 
And this is what this rabbi said. Sir, these and such like passages of scripture compel us to await one who is great and glorious and takes the everlasting kingdom from the ancient of days as son of man. But this your so-called Christ is without honor and glory so that he has even fallen into the uttermost curse that is in the law of God for he was crucified. All right, that's second century. That's, that's in year, year 100. And this guy goes, Christ fails every test of being great and glorious. He, he was cursed by the law. And so the Jews stumble over Christ crucified. They say, that's not a sign. I think it's good for us uh, to remember that signs do not equal faith. All right? Signs do not equal faith. They do not guarantee faith, right? In fact, let's, let's think about someone else who saw all kinds of amazing signs and yet still had a hardened heart. We can go all the way back to Pharaoh in the Old Testament. Think about Pharaoh. He saw miracle after miracle. He saw plague after plague, and still he hardened his heart, and God hardened his heart. In fact, before the plagues even began, this is what God said to Pharaoh, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. You see, all those signs, all the plagues, all the wonders that happened, they did not guarantee belief in Pharaoh. They actually guaranteed the opposite, that God would be shown to be great and that man would be shown to be unbelieving. Just as God intentionally hardened Pharaoh's heart so that his glory could be seen, it is also true that God hardened the Jews so the gospel would go to the Gentiles. That's the message of Romans chapter 11, right? There is a partial hardening that's happened to the Jews so that the gospel would go to the whole world. You see, even this is God's wisdom. Even the way the Jews responded to not getting the sign they wanted, this is God's grace to you. And it's God's grace to me. Because the Jews said, I don't want Jesus. I reject him. And Jesus said, I'll go to the Gentiles and they will respond. And he did that to shame the Jews to one day they will return to believe in him. But all that is God's great wisdom. This is the mystery that Paul speaks of, right? That Gentiles would be included in the church. This is God's wisdom on display. We couldn't have dreamed that up, even as Gentile people. We couldn't have come up with a way that Christ would become our Christ, right? He's, he's the Jewish Christ. He's the Jewish Messiah. How in the world did he end up being our Messiah? It's the wisdom of God, and it's the word of the cross that the world says is nuts. And that's what we say is, this is what saves me. This is my hope. This is God's wisdom on display. But, but the Jews said, it's a, we want a sign, and Christ crucified isn't it. To the Greeks, the message of Christ crucified, it says it was, it was folly. It, it wasn't wisdom. That's a strong word when it says that it's folly to the Gentiles. It doesn't just mean something that that's eccentric or that's weird. All right? You guys have that like that weird uncle, does everyone have like a weird uncle or a, you know, you have that weird whatever family member who they're just kind of odd, all right? And we just say, oh, they're, they're kind of odd. That's not what this word is, all right? This word foolish has the idea of crazy and deranged to the point of dangerous, all right? This is the crazy person that you don't want your kids to get close to, all right? This is the person that we say, this is why we have mental hospitals, all right? Because they're gonna do harm to themselves and to others. That's this word folly. The Greek said, that's deranged. That's, that's wild kind of thinking, there's a, there's a well-known drawing that was found in Rome, and it shows a worshiper before a crucified figure. All right, So there's a cross, and there's a person crucified on the cross. It has the body of a man, but has the head of a donkey. And the, ins the inscription reads this, Alexamenos worships his God. All right? That's what the Romans thought about Christianity. You, you, you worship your God who was crucified, he's got the head of a donkey. That's foolish. That's what, that's what the Romans said. That's what the people in Corinth said. This is nuts. So Christ crucified to the world. It's either a stumbling block to Jews who say, give me a sign, or it's folly to the Gentiles who loved wisdom. And so professing themselves to be wise, they were the ones who made themselves to be fools. So, so how was it that anybody came to believe this message, this word of the cross? How did that happen in Corinth? Verse 24 tells us, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, in both groups, people that before would have demanded a sign or would have said, this isn't wise, there are those who are called. And for them, Christ is the power of God 
and he is the wisdom of God. Remember that this is an early epistle, and yet Paul clearly expects the Corinthians to have a full and a robust understanding of God's sovereignty, right? He says, God was the one who chose you. The Corinthians didn't choose Christ. That would have looked ridiculous to them. If they were Jews, they would have said, I want to see a sign. If they were, if, if they were Gentiles, they would have said, that's not wise. How in the world did they come to faith in the first place? Paul says, obviously, God chose you. That's how. Those who are called by God, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And there are those of us today, these, these many centuries later, who still fit in that category of called by God. And to us, Christ is the same. He is the power of God and he is the wisdom of God. And so this is good news for you this morning. You're hearing this and you're saying, it is good news that I see Christ not as, not as some, someone who is foolish and Christ crucified doesn't seem like an outlandish message This is grace to me. My soul feeds on this good news because Christ is God's power and he's God's wisdom. And he is it for me. He's for me. And so Paul ends this little paragraph by exalting God. He says in verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I think when he says foolishness and weakness, it's actually the foolish thing of God and the weak thing of God. I think he's specifically still talking about the cross. So he's not talking about just generally, you know, God's most foolish moment is wiser than man's brightest moment. He's still talking about the cross, all right? So he's saying the foolish thing of God, the cross, that is still better. It's still wiser than men, all right? That word men, that's all of mankind put together, all right? So he's saying the foolish thing, the cross, that's wiser than everything humanity could put together um, piled up on top. All right, so all of humanity for all the ages, the wisest thing they could come up with, the cross is still wiser than that. And then he says the weakness of God, the weak thing of God, the cross, it's stronger than men. So all the, sh- all the strength that men could muster, every trip to the moon and amazing computer and medical advance and, and brilliant deduction and every, every piece of wisdom that could possibly be put together and piled up, the cross is still wiser than that. See, this exalts God, and this says God is great. And it's the cross that makes God look great. You say, okay, what, what's the connection between what Paul had been saying earlier, which is we need to prize unity and we need to be opposed to division? Because Paul has just said God's wisdom is better than man's wisdom. That's this whole point in this paragraph we were looking at. God's wisdom, it's better. Specifically, the word of the cross, it's better. He's telling us how it is that we can find unity and how we can hate division. And he's telling us, look to God for wisdom, not to us. Let the word of the cross be what we prize as a church. Christ is full of power and he is full of wisdom. I mean, if God had asked us, I'm sure we could have come up with a plan that looked more attractive to the wise and to the powerful, right? We could have dreamed up something that looked a little bit better. But God turned all such scheming to folly. He confounded us, which means that when we're looking for wisdom, which the Corinthian church was doing, they should only look at one place. You look to God. And so if we as a church are looking to God for our wisdom, we will have unity and we will fight division because we say God has wisdom, I don't. All right? Men are foolish. Uh, that, that's the, the not-so-complimentary understanding from this passage, right? We're foolish, Our foolish doesn't even come close to matching the cross. So why do we look to ourselves? Why would we fight and divide over Paul, over Apollos, or over Cephas when God is the one who holds the wisdom? See, God's wisdom means that we we unite around him and not around each other or our own ideas or a personality. Because unless the message of the cross and the wisdom of God is central, division is going to occur going to because what happens what happens if we start focusing on other things besides the centrality of the cross and we start prizing other pieces of wisdom right what what happens is we actually lose what's at the center of our of our belief we start looking for less wise plans and visions and dreams for our church and we start thinking that other things are more important than the word of the cross 
And it is inevitable if we start looking anywhere other than God and his wisdom as displayed in the cross that we will begin to fight with one another. Because your wisdom is going to look different than my wisdom. And his wisdom over there, I don't like that idea. Or I really like his idea, so the rest of you be quiet. It's inevitable. The infighting begins because there's a different standard for wisdom than the ultimate standard, which is God, as displayed specifically in the cross. And so if, if we can get this into our minds, this 18 through 25, if we, can, if we can solidify in our minds that this really is God's wisdom and this is how he, how he gives us wisdom, then we will pursue unity. If we say the word of the cross is what's central to Grace Church of the Valley, we will inevitably fight the divisions that tend to creep into every church. Because it's the cross that brings us together and shows us that we're not so bright. In fact, we're foolish. We're fools. God is the one who holds the wisdom. Okay? That's, that's the logic of Paul's argument saying God's wisdom is greater than man's and that will bring us together. But he adds, he adds a second thing for us to consider this morning from 26 through the end of the chapter. It's not just that God's wisdom is better than man's, but his wisdom also leads us to boasting in Christ alone. Verse number 26, he's going to use a personal illustration. All right, So he made a statement, God's wisdom is better than man's. Now he's going to illustrate that. He's going to show us that God's wisdom actually works out better than man's as well. All right? This is the second point of this morning. First of all, there's the statement of the reality that the cross looks foolish to the perishing, um, but it's wise to the ones who are being saved. But secondly, there's an illustration of God's wisdom. Verse 26. For consider your calling. Consider your own calling, he says. Think about it. Stop for a minute. Hit the pause button. Think about your own calling, brothers, brothers and sisters. He says to the Corinthians, not many of you Corinthians were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth, right? He's making the Corinthians stop and think about themselves because he's going to make a point about who we boast in. And he says, think about this, Corinthians. There weren't very many of you who were noble-born. There weren't many of you who were in the upper crust, right? Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standard of wise. There wasn't a lot of philosophers in the Corinthian church, right? You got a church that's made up of a lot of slaves, all right? A lot of slaves in the Corinthian church, it doesn't say that there weren't any who were wise according to worldly standards. It says there wasn't many. So, of course, you had the exception here and there of someone who was a little more wealthy or had a little more power, but there wasn't many. And Paul draws their attention to that because he's going to make a point. Reality is the Corinthian church wasn't marked by people that the world said was wise, powerful, or of noble birth. And I think even though these words are directly you know, they're given to the Corinthian church, not necessarily to us. I think the same thing is still true for us today, right? right? We have different standards now for how someone is wise and powerful and noble. I mean, noble birth, we don't even have nobility in our country, right? But we still, even in our culture, we still have the sense of there are some people who are more powerful than other people. There are some people with more clout. There are some people with more riches, all right? That's still a reality in our culture, even though, I mean, I, I, hope, I hope we all understand Every single person sitting in this room this morning, living in America, we are more wealthy, not only than most of the world that ever existed in Paul's day, but we're more wealthy than the rest of the world we live in today, all right? Every single one of us, all right? So if you have a phone and a car and a job and money in a bank and a roof over your head and you never worry about what you're going to eat today, you're better off than the vast majority of, of our world today. Right? So we can look at that and we can go, well, we're the ones who, I mean, we're actually rich. Right? That's something I, I try telling Silas that all the time when we're talking about money. I'll say, listen, bud, God made us rich. All right? We're rich. Because if you compare us to the rest of the world, we're rich. Right? Now, realize in our own culture, there's relative wealth, so we're not as rich as other people in our own culture. But that's true. All right? You and I, we're all rich. So you say, does that mean that, you know, not many of us are going to be saved. Well, remember that Paul's talking to the Corinthians, and he says, consider your calling that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. All right? I, I think the idea is still true. Even though we're richer than them, God still doesn't mainly save those who are the upper crust and the uppity up. All right? So we're not slaves in this room. Um, we resent the idea of slavery in America, and, and we're all free. We'd say we're all, we're all free men and women. All right? But there's still this idea of some people are relatively more powerful or more rich or whatever else than someone else. And, and I think it's God's way 
to care for all of us. Not just the powerful, not, not for the ones the world says is they're, they're the greatest. God cares for the lowly. And that too is good news for you, isn't it? Isn't that good news for us that, that God, didn't, God didn't look for the ones who were going to be the wisest in the world? He didn't say, you know, I need to find someone who, who, has, who, who is the most influential person out there and I'm going to save them because then they're going to influence the most other people. Isn't that kind of how we think? You know, like, man, like if God could just save, I don't know, a certain politician, then like that would be the best thing for the gospel. Or, uh, you know, I mean, maybe like in today's culture, it'd be like a sports star. Like, man, if only we get a few more sports stars, be outspoken Christians, that would be what's really good for the church, right? Or, or maybe in our day, it's musicians. You know, musicians have a lot of clout and they, they have a big voice. So, man, if, if we only had a few more musicians who, who were Christians, then the gospel would really spread, Right? That's not the way God works, is it? God chooses the lowly. God chooses the weak, and he does it for a reason, and he tells us what that reason is. Verse 27. God chose, and we're back to this again. You notice that Paul just doesn't give up on this whole God's sovereignty and salvation thing, right? Uh, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God actually picked the weak. He did it on purpose. It wasn't an accident. He actually chose them, and he did it in order to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God's choices have a purpose, and his purpose is to shame the wise and the powerful. God's sovereignty is based on reasons. God's sovereignty is not arbitrary or random. So when you hear the word sovereignty, don't think that, that God just does stuff for no reason. All right, He has all the power to do what he wants to do, and he has reasons for what he does. And what he does is want the weak to bring shame to the strong. And that same thing can happen, happen in our culture, just like it happened in Corinth. So I think there's some application that would be the same as well. Should, should we want the Christian athlete or the Christian scholar or the politician or the musician, should, should, we, should we value their opinion more? Should, should we want them to be the ones who are given the interviews on 60 Minutes? And so let's find, let's find the preacher who the world says is, that's the best guy, all right? Particularly if he has like a big bright smile and he's from, he's from Texas and lots of people go to his church. And so we want him doing all the interviews, all right? We want him speaking for the Christian church, all right? We're going... Wait, wait, wait a second. I don't, I mean, I don't know about the rest of you, but I don't want Joel speaking for me. So, but he's got a big church. He's got people that listen to him. So the world says, hey, worldly wisdom says that's the guy to listen to. He's, he's got 60,000 people every Sunday. Uh, he's got the brightest smile. It, let's, let's listen to him. It's not how God works, all right? It's not how God works necessarily. God's choice has a purpose. Great in the world's eyes does not equal great in God's eyes. And we do well to remember that. Verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. Right? That's the nothings. That's the, that's the nobodies. To bring to nothing things that are for this reason, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why are there so many nobodies and nothings in the church? Why is the church made up of so many just nobodies? Precisely because God has chosen to choose them. He prefers them. God prefers the nobodies of the world. People aren't going to come to Christ unless God chooses them. So just look at the people who have come to Christ. They're the ones that God wants to choose. And they're not the cream of the crop in the world's standards. We're not. All right? So, I don't know. Maybe I'm talking to you and, and you need to feel like you're the exception. You're the, you're the not many, you know, wise or noble or whatever else. So I guess I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the rest of us. Um, we're not the cream of the crop from the world standards. And so if the Corinthian believers are already pretty much nothing, they shouldn't be causing disunity over personalities anyway. We're back to this has a connection to unity because we only have one boast and that is Christ. There's... There is no human system of gaining God's favor, and that's God's grace to us. So, I mean, if you were that person and, you know, you were the one who was always picked last for kickball in junior high, and you didn't, you know, you were the guy who didn't, who didn't make the, the football team. You went to college and nobody cared about your grades. Um, you're in your workplace and you constantly keep getting skipped over for, for promotion. Uh, I've got good news for you. All right, I've got really good news for you. God's favor to you 
is not based on your standing in the world. It's not. God's kindness to you is not based on the fact that you've left a bigger mark than your neighbor, that more people know you, that you've got more Facebook friends. I don't, I don't know, whatever it is that you measure, this is how I'm known. That's not, that's not how God's favor is given to us. So do you feel like you're not leaving your mark on the world, uh, that, that you're a nobody, that you live in obscurity? Um, maybe you're towards the end of your life and you say, I've lived my whole life. And from the world's perspective, the world would say, my life didn't count for much. It didn't, it didn't amount to a whole lot. I'm just a drop in the bucket of humanity, right? This passage is good news to you because what it says is you are the kind of person that God loves to choose and you are the kind of person that God uses to shame the wise and to shame the strong. God loves to use nobodies. And so if you're a nobody this morning, you're in a great spot to be. God loves to use nobodies. The most important favor of all the favor of God himself is not based on your self-worth or of your self-importance or even of your self-effort. And this is good news to us, I think, especially in our culture, and, and I hope you hear this from Paul. I hope you hear this from the gospel because we live in a culture that preaches your self-worth and your self-esteem and your self-greatness, right? Reality is that none of that amounts to a hill of beans from God's perspective and from God's favor to you. You do not have to improve yourself this morning in order to have God's favor. You, you do not have to be powerful and influential. You do have to believe in Christ crucified. That's what you need to do this morning. You need to put your hope in, in the foolish message that there was a man from Nazareth. And after living a perfect life, one day he spread his arms and they were nailed to a tree and he was dead. And he was dead for you. And that three days later, powerfully and victoriously, he rose from the dead. Those who believe in the message of Christ crucified, they're, they're the ones who know the grace and favor of God. Not the ones who are the most brilliant. Not the ones who are the most influential. Not the ones that have thousands of people watching the live stream of their funeral. God's favor is based on his grace, his kindness. That's what it is. It is God's kindness to you. And so God's sovereign purpose eliminates boasting in his presence and lets us boast where we ought to, and that's in Christ. So he says in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. There isn't a single one of us who will stand before God and will tell him, good thing you saved me because I spent thousands of dollars in missionary efforts all across the world. I, I personally supported at least 15 different missionaries all my life. Uh, good thing you saved me, God. Uh, I've been reading my Bible every single day since then. Uh, I, I have led thousands of people to come to know you. Uh, there, there's no boasting when we stand before God. We don't stand before God and say, um, yep, I'm, I know I'm in, I'm in good shape here standing before you um, because I have been so much better than all of my neighbors and I have been mostly a truth teller um, I have always honored my parents, except for those few times, but I've mostly been in it. We don't have any, any reason for boasting before God. There's not a, you know what, God, I, I deserve to be here in heaven because, you know, mentally, I mean, I, I'm pretty much a cut, cut above. I've always been kind of a cut above the people around me, and um, I figured out this whole way to earn your favor, and, uh, and it worked great. So because mentally I'm so far superior, um, no, there's no such thing as boasting before God because our favor is based on his kindness, not on our performance, not on our self-worth, not on our self-effort. In fact, God chooses what is low and despised so that none of us can boast in his presence. Verse 30, God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made. Our life is in Christ Jesus, beloved, and God was the one who made him our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. We didn't figure those things out. We didn't make that happen, all right? You didn't make it happen that, God, that, that Christ was your wisdom. You didn't, like, decide, man, I want, I want, I'm just going to decide that Christ is going to be where, where I look for wisdom and righteousness. And, and That was God's gracious work in you to bring you to that point. God, the gospel is all over, these pas all over this passage. His grace is here. The Christ for us, Christ is our sanctification and he's our redemption. So where else could Paul end except where, where Jeremiah wrote 
Verse 31, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's where boasting belongs, all right? Remember that when Jeremiah wrote those words, he said that boasting belongs in Yahweh, all right? Paul could not have a higher view of Jesus Christ than he does. He says Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament, so boast in him. Don't boast, don't boast in yourself. Don't boast in your own in your own self-efforts. The point of all of this is that, is that Christ is the one who we should be boasting in. So why would we be boasting in Paul or Apollos or Peter or David or Jeremy or John MacArthur or R.C. Sproul or whoever else you're going to name in this, in this list? Why would you be boasting in them? Why would you do it? Don't boast in somebody. Boast in Christ. To do any less is to miss the wisdom of God and is to plunge us into disunity. It's just a little bit crazy for us to use humans as the point of comparison and elevation and to fight over which of us humans are greater. God's wisdom has declared that all of us are fools and his wisdom has shown that all of us are powerless. So why would we divide over people any longer? Why would we do it? Boast in Christ. And so if we will do these two things, if we will say God's wisdom is better than man's, that will bring us unity. And if we will make our boast in Christ alone, that will bring us unity. And that's Paul's point. Reject the worldly wisdom that says there's a different way to evaluate wisdom. Reject the worldly wisdom that says boast in people besides Christ. Because if the Corinthian church would do that, they would know unity. And if we will do that, we will know unity as well. So let me just make a few closing applications. Paul's primary point is unity. So that should be a primary application in your mind coming from this passage. Worldly wisdom says things like, start with the wealthy and powerful and win them, and then let them change society. But start with slaves or the less educated or the blue collar or your Hispanic neighbor. Like, no, we got we to gotta go for the top. Follow God's wisdom and not the world's. Worldly wisdom says things like, you know, this whole church project don't try mixing up ages and people with social standing and ethnicity. Keep people together who like the same things, all right? In fact, you probably should have just one central leader and everyone just kind of follows him. Get a Paul, get an Apollos, and, and worldly wisdom says that makes good sense. Uh, have people become loyal to an individual. Uh, worldly wisdom says if there are people that like hymns and some people like contemporary music, then what you do is you make two different services. That's, that's good worldly wisdom. Uh, just give people what they like. God's wisdom says, pursue unity. He says things like, sing to one another. He says things like, let older women be with younger women to teach them to love their husbands and, and be good keepers at home. Right? You'll know worldly wisdom when it disagrees with Scripture, and then you'll know it when it divides the church. Okay? Worldly wisdom says, let's break people up. Let's, let's, let's put people together who only like the same things. Um, let's... Let's pursue division. God's word says, let's pursue unity. It's based on the cross, and that's something that cuts across any ethnic, social, male-female, age boundary that exists. Worldly wisdom says, yeah, I like the sound of that unity, so let's, let's love that and not doctrine, because, man, that sounds divisive. Uh, the best way to unity is God's wisdom. God's wisdom is what true doctrine is all about, discovering and teaching and prizing. So let's reject worldly wisdom because that will only bring us division. Pursue unity by pursuing God's wisdom in every facet, certainly in the cross, and then in every facet of our philosophy and our practice. Second application we can see from this passage is, man, let's just worship God for his greatness. I mean, the most foolish thing that God has done is better than all the wisdom of man put together. Uh, the most unwise thing God has ever done, we can't even get close to that kind of wisdom. God is great, and we are not. Third, let's make our boast in Christ. Hey, how are you doing? How are you doing during the week boasting in Christ? All right. Have you been finding yourself boasting more in yourself, in your academic achievements, in your prowess at your job? Um, have, you, have you been finding yourself talking about yourself? Or are you making your boast in Christ? Um, do you find yourself boasting in your children or in your possessions? Or, uh, what is it that you're boasting in? Make your boast in Christ. 
And when we're together as a church, let's, let's remind one another that, that we don't boast in any person except for Jesus Christ. And let's praise him. Let's go out on the patio today and let's talk about how good Christ was to us this last week and how good he's going to be to us this week. Let's savor him and boast in him to each other and to a watching world. Let's boast in Christ. Lastly, this one potential application you can see in this passage, let's not be surprised when our message is scorned, okay? You probably know this if you've been sharing the gospel at any length. Look, this passage, it just helps, it helps kind of cut off that, that surprise factor when someone goes, after you explain the whole gospel to them, and they kind of look at you and they're like, frankly, that's nuts. Uh, that's no shock, all right? That's been happening since the first century. So don't be surprised when that happens. We can be grieved, but don't be shocked, all right? We can be upset when people don't believe Christ crucified, but people have been rejecting Christ and Christ crucified ever since he died. So let's not be surprised. In fact, let's rely on the fact that our job is to communicate Christ crucified. God will do the choosing. We will do the communicating. We will be faithful to preach him, and then we'll allow God to do what God is going to do. Okay? God's wisdom is better than man's, and it leads us to boasting in Christ alone.